Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard John Pielli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, hour two of the radio program. We're going to open right up with an interview I recorded with former Major League pitcher Chuck McElroy. And Chuck was uh, drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies in the 1986 season, made his Major League debut with them, and then moved over to the Cubs where he kind of established himself as a left-handed reliever, but not a specialist. Towards the end of his career, he became that prototypical loogie but you know prior to that he was a very good reliever late in games could pitch more than one inning and you know there's a couple of things we end up getting into so hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Phillies Cubs Rockies Mets amongst other teams left-hand pitcher Chuck McElroy. This is John Pielli I'm here with former major league pitcher Chuck McElroy. Chuck thanks for having a couple minutes today. And of course, Chuck, you know, you got a chance to, you know, pitch in a game for, you know, a, a, you know just about 12 years, man. And that's, you know, obviously to be a major league pitcher for that long, uh, you know, obviously means that you had to have the ability to stick around and make adjustments through all, through all the different years. What would you say was the biggest adjustment that you had to make, you know, going out through your career to be able to sustain yourself as a major league pitcher? Well, what I'm doing is that I found myself with the, the right guys on the team. Um, I had older guys, and I'm kind of, kind of glad that I came up with the older generation because they taught me how to play the game and respect the game and uh, go on out and take care of your business. And, you know, they say, you know, before you know you got 10 years in, you got to say that they're 12, 12 years in, and, and uh, learn the game from those guys. And, you know, they're going to say, the most important thing and, and not abuse them on. And the most important thing, you know, was the mental part of the game. And, I just looked at the game and I just had fun. I enjoyed it. Man, man, you know, getting paid for it and just had fun. Yeah, now, you, you know, you touch on that, you know, growing up with, you know, pretty much coming up with an older type of generation. You were, of course, drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies in 1986. Um, who would you think were, your, were the biggest, you know, the biggest influences on you as far as, you know, either either players or pitchers in a Philadelphia organization or people that kind of mentored you coming up through that farm system? I had to have, like, uh, Kenny Howell, 
fascinates me is that obviously the change of the reliever you know when you first came up you know you went out there and you, you were you were confident and ready to go two three innings if you needed to and you know obviously it wouldn't happen all the time but you knew you were ready to do that but now particularly with left-handed relievers they got to learn at such a young age to get used to getting you know specifically lefties out and in a lot of situations just one left-hand pitcher out you know how did, how did you see that evolve throughout your your major league career well, what I did was, and, uh, what was taught to me, and uh, say, look, out here you cannot be afraid to fail, because the same guy you face one night, you can face him the next three nights. So what I did was I just took that philosophy and I just ran with it, and, and just when I did a challenge every year, you know, uh, they've always taught me and tell me to look, if you're going to lose, lose on your best pitch, lose outside, making the guys hit the ball, I just feel like if they can do that, you put your head off of them. And that's what it was. Just giving respect to the hitters sometimes because you know, there was a good baseball some great hitters and you're not going to get them all. You know, you got Tony Green and those guys like they're hard to get out. But when I got them out, you, yes, I would definitely find out because those are good hitters that was hard to get out. And I, when I lost, I lost my head up and I was ready to go the next day. That's what made the difference. Yeah, it definitely had to, and I tell you, you know, especially nowadays, and I tell you, I know you got to see some of that towards the end of your career as the, your role kind of changed, and you got used to going in that big situation. You know, like you said, going up against the Tony Gwynn, and then, you know, you get him out, you come out of the game, you feel like you did your job. But, you know, I also, I also think that in some instances, the way some of the relievers are used nowadays, I think it's taken away some of the potential that they have because I'm sure you would agree from your perspective that you felt just as confident getting a right-hand hitter out than a left-hand hitter out. Yeah, you know, I, I couldn't uh, do that. I really tell you why how uh, you're right about that because I was more effective against right-handers. And I guess because I, I can teach the ball, throw the ball better on the outside on a right-hand than I could inside on a left-hander. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, as you know, obviously as you move forward, you make, you know, you make the change and, you know, your role changes a little bit. But, of course, you had a chance to pitch, you know, for a lot of teams. Once again, John Piella here, a former Major League pitcher, Chuck McElroy. Now, you know, you, you kind of establish yourself a little bit. 1991 comes, you know, you go over to the Cubs, you have a, you know, breakout season, sub-2 ERA. 
uh, you know, you must have felt pretty confident at that point. Did you think from that, you know, pretty much at that point, a lot of your work and uh, stuff that you, you know, you mentioned before about picking brains about guys, you know, guys like Steve Bedrosian and stuff was starting to pay off? Yeah, well, it was, you know, once again, you know, I got traded over to the Cubs, you know, you bring them out, like, Oliver Mondrick, Austin Ryan Sandberg, Sean Dunstan, uh, Greg Maddox, you know, those guys made the game fun. That was the most important thing, was making the game fun. Since I was still a young, you know, ball player, is, you know, breaking my way into the major league, because it was all about timing. Timing is the most important thing, because when you have new genes coming in, new managers coming in, it's all about timing. You know, that was what it was all about. It's one thing, they couldn't take away from you. If you had the stats, you know, a number, number of years, yes, that made a big difference is why you're going to be around there. But any time that you bring in someone else new, it makes it a whole lot tougher because now they got to see you all over again throughout the season. And it was best for, for that general manager or that manager. Yeah, that, that's what that's what it was. You know, it made a big difference. Yeah, no question. Once again, John Pielli here with Chuck McElroy. Now, you know, you, you end up, uh, you know, you know, switching a lot, a lot of different teams. And I think, you know, what becomes kind of common, particularly about you know relievers in a game, you know, a lot, a lot of teams, you know, feel some in some instances that they could kind of be flipped around, and you know, other teams like to take chances on, uh, you know, on, on guys that are able to go out there and you know pitch, you know, the middle innings and help out, you know, towards the back of the bullpen, but. Uh, you know, what was the, in your opinion, your maybe the best stop that you made? Like you went over to the Cubs, you went over to the Reds, you know, the Angels, the White Sox, the Rockies, the Mets, the Orioles, and the Padres. Did you ever hit a certain place where you know you were like, you know, in addition to just doing your job, going out there and pitching, you're like, hey, you know, this is a place I wouldn't mind being for a little while. I, I, think I had a couple things that were like that. Of course, you know, Chicago Cubs because of the tradition. Uh, that's what really made me and, and really put my name out there was the Cubs because you're on TV every day. And also the Reds. The Reds was the one that, you know, with the guys on the team like the Barry Larkins, uh, made it fun to be over there, made the game fun, that it wasn't, it wasn't just a job, that we were a family. And also to the Rockies, the Rockies was given my first multi-year contract because um, they, tra- they treated me right. And they let me go out there and be me. And I'm not saying that all the other teams didn't, but it was just out there, those the ones that made the game for me. Yeah, no question. I'll tell you, you know, one thing that obviously you mentioned the Rockies, you know, they ended up, t- um, you know, they, I'm not mistaken, no, I'm sorry, I got a mistake. You know, the Arizona Diamondbacks took you in the uh, expansion draft prior to the 1998 season. You know, a chance to play for a brand new franchise, uh, you know, an organization that's just starting out. Um, how did you, how did you feel about that? And tell us a little bit about your experience playing for a team that, you know, just, just uh, you know, kind of coming to spring training with a team that was just forming itself? Well, you know, the thing is, it was always told to me that no matter what uniform you put on, you got there and you can respect it, the name on the front and the name on the back, and you got there and do your job, and before you know it, you got two years in. That was always taught to me. It didn't matter. I just wanted to pitch, to play ball, and be a major league pitcher. 
Yeah, of course, you know, after, after you're done pitching, you know, you end up, uh, you know, your son gets drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals in a 2011 draft in the third round. You know, tell us a little bit about, you know, obviously that probably means a lot to you as a dad. you got to be proud. You know, you see your son, you know, possibly, you know, you know, play, you know obviously playing professional baseball and maybe making it to the big league someday. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, CJ and, you know, him, him uh, you know, playing professional baseball now. Uh, the thing is, you know, with CJ, he was a big-time football uh, running back in, in, uh, in football in high school, and he had a lot of colleges out there. I think he was offered 15 scholarships, football scholarships uh, for football. And um, also, you know, um, with baseball, you know, like going through that whole draft process, I kind of handled everything for him during the whole draft process. I tell you, I don't know how he just do it with a lot of players. Just me handling that one was a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And it was it wasn't stress. I, I, best thing I can say, best words I can put it was it was it was, it was stress fun. It was stress because it's your son, but it was fun because you see your son go through this process. And he had done, done a tremendous job of taking care of his business on the field. And that's what I told him: take care of your business on the field and let that happen. Because things that happen off the field, and it, it was fun to see him and seeing all the scouts at the game. It was fun just seeing that and being around that. And. Uh, you know, he gave up football, and he was looking for football and baseball at University of Houston, and he gave it up to go play baseball because he had something that I never had, speed. He can run. He has speed. He can, he can definitely run. He's one of those ones that was a 63960 guy, a 4340 guy. So he was the one that has a whole lot of speed that would make the difference between him and myself. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, John Pierre here, former Major League pitcher Chuck McElroy. Now, I'm going to throw an interesting question at you because, you know, you mentioned with, you know, with your son, you know, you were there, you know, you, you got a chance to see him get drafted, be part of the draft. What would you think was the, the biggest difference between, uh, you know, you seeing the draft process from your son's perspective now to the way it was when you were drafted when the Philadelphia Phillies took you in 1986? Right, the biggest difference is that you have more that's out there for us to eat wise, eating wise. There's more scouts out there and also too is you got you got showcases like perfect game, baseball factory, you know, things like that that we never had back in the days where you can go play and uh, show your skills and kind of all the scouts at one time and call it at one time. It was one of the ones back then when I came that it was the one day uh one guy can see you and, and maybe you might have one or two guys at the games. Now you have about 20, 30 scouts at, at a lot of these guys' games. So that was the biggest difference. Now, uh, absolutely, man. And Chuck, and of course, you know, you do you do a lot of work now with a lot of uh, younger players, you know, coaching and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, instructional things. You know, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're up to with that, what got you into it, and, you know, a little bit about your website. Well, the thing is that I got me into, because, you know, of course I have two boys, but also two, one that, that was my way of staying in the game, around the game, was helping kids, uh, you know, learn the game, and play the game right, and respect the game, and trying to help them find baseball scholarships. And, you know, the biggest thing that I got to tell the kids and I tell the parents, especially kids, is that, you know, you cannot be afraid to fail. You know, especially high school kids. I tell them all the time, I say, if you came out to fail in high school, what makes you think you can have a fellow in college or, or high school, you know, or football? Oh, you have to go out here. They're not worried about your stats or, or how many games the team won. As right now, all they're worried about is do you know how to play baseball. So just kind of 
get back to those kids and get them to understand that you need to learn the game first now and win later, because win later is when it's going to matter. And, you know, that's what brought me and kept me to the game, because I wanted to teach these kids about life on the field and off the field, and how to play the game and respect the game. Because I tell them, baseball don't owe you anything. You owe the game. No, no question about it. Listen, Chuck, I want to thank you for having some time. I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and, you know, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice spot there with Chuck McElroy. Great catching up with him. Of course, I remember him from the you know the 99-2000 season. We moved around for a couple different teams, and one one part of the year he was traded trading deadline from the Colorado Rockies to the New York Mets. And of course, Philly fans remember him in the late 80s pitching there. You know, coming up for a couple cups of coffee before he ended up moving on to the Cubs. But we're gonna take a break here. Don't forget tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. Keep the whole dialogue interactive. And we're gonna take our first break. And be back with a lot more stuff going on. Back after this. Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WINGS. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to segue right into our next interview. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the spot with Chuck McElroy. We're going to speak with former Major League pitcher Jerry Spradlin. And Jerry came up with the Cincinnati Reds organization with, you know, relievers such as Randy Myers, Rob Dibble, 
Jeff Reardon, Jeff Brantley, you know, guys who had established themselves at the big league level and learned how to be a late game reliever, actually came up in the minor leagues as a very high profile closer. Uh, pitched for the Phillies, teams like the Giants, a couple other teams, the Indians throughout the course of his career. Hopefully you guys enjoyed his spot with former Major League pitcher Jerry Spradlin. Good afternoon, it's John Kelly. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Jerry Spradlin. Jerry, what's going on, man? Well, it's just trying to stay warm. How you doing? Yeah, it's kind of hard to stay warm now, man. The weather just changes so fast, you know? Uh, well, Jerry, you know... <laughs> yeah, it is, man. Uh, you know, obviously, you had a chance to pitch, you know, several years over in the major leagues, and you know, you came up through the, you know, through the red system. You know, tell us a little bit about, you know, you getting started and you know the success you had in the minor leagues. I know, you know, you had you had the one year where you know you pitched to like a, a low one ERA, 34 saves for Chattanooga in the Southern League, right? Yeah, that was back in '92. Uh, wow, it's kind of I don't. I guess I just start from the beginning. I mean, I, you know, I only pitched about a year in college ball, and uh, I guess I could kind of share my whole start, I guess, if you will. Um, but, I mean, I started at a junior college. I was kind of a walk-on, and, and then so I started playing for uh, Fullerton Junior College, and then I... Long story short, I, I got dropped from the team about five weeks before the season ended because I didn't have um, money to go on a trip to Arizona to play, you know. So, anyway, he, he dropped me, but before that, a scout from the Reds ended up seeing me, uh, you know, throw. saw me throw a one-hitter and um, ended up calling my house that night. Wondering if I wanted to play ball in the summer, you know, professional. My dad's like, absolutely. And uh, so then when I got dropped from the team, uh, I, ended up, I was working with Clyde Wright, um, you know, who pitched for the Angels. Yeah, of course. And, uh, and uh, he actually used to play golf with the scout who wanted to sign me, who was at Roebuck, I guess, and I guess he used to pitch for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So, anyway, they talked, and then Clyde ended up paying my fee to pitch in an amateur league, and then Ed would come down and watch me every weekend, uh, along with uh, Larry Barton. And then, you know, I got drafted on June 1st, so that's, and then just kind of tried to just keep you know, listening to what the coaches would tell me and, and try to work as hard as I could to get better. I mean, that's kind of in a nutshell. Yeah, no question, man. And, you know, of course, you know, you were able to, you know, establish yourself. You know, you mentioned, you know, 1992, yeah, you kind of had the breakout season as a, as a reliever. Um, you know, what was, what was the, what, what were the keys to you being able to, uh, you know, establish yourself, you know, young as a relief pitcher? Well, you know, it's kind of weird. I mean, that's what they drafted me as. I wasn't a starter. I was a reliever in college. Um, and I, actually, I started, I think that I started in the summer, but then once the regular season started, our, our coach wouldn't allow freshmen to start, so I ended up working out of pen pretty much all the time, so then they drafted me as a reliever. And, uh, 
you know, I, I had pretty good control. My dad used to preach control all the time. And, you know, you know as well as I do, you can't come in there and walk people. So, you know, the more consistent you are, the more time they give you the ball. And it's kind of what took off from there. I just kind of worked my way up. I, I did pretty well my first year in rookie ball. And then that's where they invited me to instructional league. I did well again there. And then just kind of kept, kept you know, being consistent every year as long as I can figure as long as my good outings outnumbered my bad outings and, and you know, finish strong, then chances are I would move up, you know, and you know, just every year just showed my consistency. And so, um, you know, that was definitely my, probably one of my best years in my life. So but they just, they told me, you know, you're going to be the closer. And so I kind of had this competition going with that. Uh, another guy who was, I think he was in Shreveport, was, uh, I think his name was Todd Revenue or something like that, but we were kind of going back and forth to see who was going to be, have the most saves in the league and everything. Uh, he didn't know it, but I was kind of competing with him, so. <laughs> that was good fun, you know, I mean, so, crazy game, and I never even got a call up that year. Yeah, no, it was a, you know, it was a solid season. Of course, you know, it leads to you, you know, getting a chance to pitch in 1993. Now, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your first experience in the big leagues, pitching, you know, and I'm sure you know up to this point that you could do it, but obviously a big adjustment facing, you know, the best in the game. Um, you know, one of my teammates that I played with in Indianapolis, uh, I believe his name was... Yeah, so, no, absolutely. That was, that was my, 
Absolutely, man. And, you know, of course, you know, you end up going through the Reds for a little bit, and then, you know, you pitch for the Phillies, and really it starts a string of, you know, about five consecutive years where you're going out there throwing, you know, if I'm not mistaken, 58 games plus each year over the course of that time. And you probably had to feel a little bit comfortable at this point, right? Yeah, I think because, you know, like in 97, um, like when I was with the Reds, it was hard because you had, you know, coming up early 90s, you had Bill Charlton and Myers, you know, the nasty boys, you know, um, basically in the bullpen. So it was really hard to kind of go anywhere. And then even when I got there, I mean, they still had Jeff Brantley and Jeff Reardon. They still had Dibble. I mean, they, you know, they had all these guys. So they were pretty stacked with pitching. And then, like, to go to Philly and finally, like, I was kind of a bubble guy in spring training. So I wasn't necessarily guaranteed a spot, you know, they put me on the roster. And, I, I mean, I had a good spring training. And then, but, you know, that doesn't always mean anything. Because, I mean, that's, I've known guys that, can go on spring training and we can't have 10 scoreless innings and still get sent down. Yeah, absolutely. Not really matter, but, you know, they've kind of got their team already picked. So, about three days before we're breaking camp, you know, Frank Honda called me into the clubhouse and was just, I thought, you know, he tells you to shut the door behind you and thinking, all right, I'm getting sent down or something. You know, I just want to let you know you made the team, and oh man, I was so relieved. Felt like I, I earned it, you know. And I, I mean, he kept giving me the ball, and I kept taking it as much as he gave it to me. And, I mean, looking back, it's, you know, it was a lot of innings. I mean, I had, I think, 76 appearances the first year, which I was hoping to get 81, but it didn't happen. Um, <laughs> But, man, I look back and, you know, I mean, I, I just love getting the ball. I want to take it whenever he gives it to me, so... Yeah, no question. Now, you know, as you go back like a little bit, you, know, you mentioned your time with the Reds and all the, you know, the, the good proven closers that were there. Did you ever get much of a chance to pick the brain of, you know, like a Myers or a Jeff Reardon or, you know, the, the you know guys like that to kind of see what they did to get the edge they had? I mean, Reardon and Myers were gone when I got there. I mean, Dibble was still there. And so I, you know, he tried to talk to them a little bit and try to watch what they do. I mean, I kind of emulated Dibble's leg kick because I felt like I threw harder when I had a higher leg kick. You know, and we found out no one right said the same thing as my pitching coach I had here in California. So, um, but I just kind of took that on and then tried to just kind of watch and learn. You know, I didn't, I didn't uh, I wasn't too, I don't want to say outgoing, like I didn't talk a whole lot, I just kind of absorbed stuff and, I mean, I saw a guy that would come up and try to talk about how good they were in the next scene, you know, the veterans were talking about them and they didn't last too long, so I just kind of kept my mouth shut and did what they told me to do. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I talked to them a little bit, I talked to Reardon, I mean, Reardon used to throw his knuckleball 
pretty hard and I was in a knuckle bar, so I just kind of, you know, they had their routine, you know, I mean, Dylan and Charles would be in the, I mean, Dylan and uh, Reardon would be in the clubhouse till about the sixth inning. I walk in around the floor to sit to go use the restroom and they're smoking a cigarette, you know, so they had their kind of little thing, they come out in the fifth or sixth and be ready to go. No. <laughs> yeah, no question, man. Once again, John Pialli here, former major league pitcher Jerry Spradlin. Now, you know, you, you end up, you know, with the Phillies for a couple of years. You play, you know, a year in Cleveland, a year in San Francisco, and then a year in Kansas City. What did, what did you think through that time, from the Phillies to the Indians to the Giants to the Royals? Which which year would you think you were part of the best bullpen? Hmm. On paper, or just as a team? Well, I think I think I guess it would be maybe a combination of both. I mean, sometimes you know, on paper doesn't necessarily pan out. You know, once you know, once you got it together, you know, you you established your role. There's other guys that had their roles established, and you know, you kind of looked at it. You said, hey, we got we got something set up here that you know, the ball go to him, to me, to him, to him, or you know, whatever order that is. I think you know, I mean, yeah, because you could say on paper. I mean, Cleveland had. You know, they were, had a pretty good solid bullpen. And, but I think San Francisco, because, I mean, you had Rob Mann down there. You had Alan Embry. You had Rich Rodriguez. It's Felix Rodriguez. You had Julian Tavares, myself, John Johnstone. Um, but any one of those guys, it just seemed like, they could get the ball to, and it was, you know, they're going to shut it down. Yeah, now I. <laughs> no, absolutely, man. Now, you know, you end up, after after 2000, you end up bouncing around a little bit from the Cardinals organization to independent ball to Arizona, you know, and you, you end up going to, you know, a couple different organizations playing some independent ball. Uh, you know, how did that feel for you? Like, how, how were you able to handle that after having, you know, established amount of success in the big leagues to kind of have to almost, like, do it all over again and prove yourself again? It was kind of humbling, you know. I mean, you know, not so much going back to St. Louis because I knew, you know, like Cleveland promised, you know, they tell you one thing and do another. Club. I mean, clubs just do that. As far as, you know, they told me they'd give me a shot to make the team approve a legitimate shot. But I only got two innings in spring training, and they were going to send me down. So I asked for my release and went to St. Louis, which I almost went to New York. I was literally on my way to Columbus, and then the team like St. Louis won anymore. So I went there. And then, you know, I got hurt. I found out I was hurt. Uh, halfway through the season, when they called me up to St. Louis, I, he, re, he finally, you know, he find out you got a tear in your rotator in your labrum, and, uh, you know, now you're, I worked so hard to get to the big leagues, I was having one of my best years in AAA, and then it's over before it even got started, you know, and then, so then I, you know, yeah, the next year we have an independent ball, we kind of, because, I mean, I guess I can tell you, I mean, it's like St. Louis wanted me to wait to have surgery, you know, first of saying, you know, have it. 
you know, have it in September or, you know, August, July, August, whatever, so that if you lending my spring trading next year, they were already going to offer me a contract. And then when they found out I really needed surgery, then they were wanting me to postpone it spring training and then have the surgery, and I'm thinking, but they're already out the whole year. So I decided to go ahead and have it done anyway. And so, you know, I'm not trying to badmouth any organization or anything, but, you know, they pulled the contract off the table and then didn't end up paying for my surgery and my, my insurance had to pay for it. They paid for my rehab, but, uh, you know, I ended up having to pay for my surgery on my insurance. And, uh, Luckily, I kept the insurance I had, otherwise I would have been able to pay for it. Wow, you know, that, that ends up being a bad break, man, and, you know, you're able to you're able to get through that, and, you, you know, you pitched again, and, you know, you never made it back to the big leagues, but what definitely uh, definitely interests me is the fact that three years ago, you had a chance to pitch for, uh, you know, in the Golden Baseball League for the Maui team, you know, at age 43. Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to come back at that point, and, you know, a little bit about how, you know, how that season went, as you, you know, you got a chance to pitch again after, you know, after a couple of years being well, I'll, I'll kind of, let me just, I'll back up, you know, kind of to my, after I pitched in Baltimore, you know, there in Blue Canyon in Ottawa, I mean, like, you know, I just, I felt like I, I couldn't get consistent in AAA with the way things were, uh, coaching wise. And so, you know, I got released. And then I, I felt like I'm getting ready for the 2005 season. I mean, I know my arm's back, but I'm throwing like, you know, 94, 95 um, consistently. Um, but I, so I didn't feel like I needed to go back in the tennis ball. But I thought, well, I could go back to Camden, but had a point four, so I was kind of like, why do I need to go back there? I felt like my arm's healthy. And then, you know, nobody's calling on the phone, interested, so I figured, well, I guess I'm done. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a Scott Morris to really push and get me a job. I had a guy who was a good guy, but he's kind of new to the, being an agent and, so, you know, I just, I couldn't get a job, so I just shut it down. Uh, you know, I didn't want to, but nobody's calling me because I have no choice. And then I just figured, well, you know, it's been six years, and <laughs> I was working for myself for a little bit, and then I just... Actually, I couldn't really get a job doing anything, so I figured, well, let me give it a shot, see if I can play ball again. So that's when um, I knew one of the owners of the Flyers at the time, Orange County Flyers, and he was kind of like, he's like, I want you to pitch for us. And I'm like, okay, I'll try out. And, and then he's like, but if that doesn't happen, I'll help get you a job. He's, 
and also an entertainment lawyer and those things. So he was kind of acting as my agent, so to speak. Um, and so Fullerton didn't want me, so then he called Tony Snyder, you know, over there in Maui on, on my behalf. And then, you know, we talked, and then I said, look, I'm just looking for an opportunity, you know, I, it's not about the money. It's just, just, you know, if I do my job and I'm where I want to be, then somebody will, maybe somebody will give me a chance. I figure if Jesse or Roscoe could pitch to least, you know, mid-late 40s, why couldn't I? So, um, so I ended up, you know, went there, had a good spring, and made the team, and uh, my arm didn't quite respond the way I wanted to. I think I got back to maybe 92. I was anywhere from 88 to 92, and I just felt like it's not where I wanted it to be. You know, it wasn't 95, 96. Can't figure if it was, I'd probably end up with a job. So, since it wasn't, I just decided, you know, it's time to get out. I went out on a winning team. And so, you know, I, I have closure with it. And absolutely, man. And I tell you, you know, you had a chance to pitch for a long time, you know, a career that really spans for, you know, almost 20 years, you know, with the little gap in between. But, uh, Jerry, I want to thank you for having some time, man. appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and, you know, best of luck to you in the future. There it is. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview with Jerry Spradlin. was one of the uh, the most durable relievers over about a five-year stretch, pitching with teams like the Phillies and the Indians and the Giants. And, you know, had a very good career and obviously learned from some of the best coming up with the Reds and, you know, was very good in the minor leagues when he learned how to be a closer at a young age. So we're going to take a break, finish up, bases empty blog, the whole thing, ton of stuff going on. Don't forget to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli and like my Facebook page, JohnPielli.com. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. You're listening to MTR Radio. A flippin' out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We will offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. Cases empty blog. Go ahead, laugh, laugh all you want, but the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest. Story ever told, okay? Faces empty blog. 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 Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to check out my blog if you haven't already and follow it. 
on my johnpielli.com website. It's called the Bases Empty blog, johnpielli.com. My articles are also featured on mtrmedia.com. Just check that out, mtrmedia.com slash johnpielli. And, of course, if you're listening, you can just click and read some of my most re- recent articles while you're listening to the show. Um, one guy I wanted to get into, Carl Erskine. And, you know, he just had a recent birthday. He turned 87 the other day. And here was a guy that – was, was known as a very good pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers and, of course, later on the Los Angeles Dodgers, but also a pitcher that probably doesn't get enough credit for what he did at the right time. Now, remember, the Brooklyn Dodgers were a team that consistently, year after year, were going out there and winning pennants for the National League or at least finishing towards the top. And we know all about their appearances with the Yankees in the World Series and, of course, 41, 47, 49 you know, 52, 53, and of course finally beat the Yankees in the 1955 World Series, which I say all the time was the day that my mother was born, October 4th, 1955, when Johnny Padres won that game seven against the Yankees. But, you know, you looked at the good pitching that they had and guys like Don Newcomb, guys like Ralph Branca um, were probably the well-known guys early on. Preacher Rowe was part of the rotation. And then later on when he moved to Los Angeles and had his success, you know, was led by a guy like Johnny Padres and eventually Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale. But there also was a certain period where the Dodgers didn't really have a go-to guy. And that was after Newcomb had left for the service in the 1951 season. And, you know, they didn't really have a guy that was the ace. And Carl Erskine had come up there in 1951, uh, pitched, made only 19 starts and 27 relief appearances with kind of a swingman. But then he became the best pitcher in 1952 when he absolutely needed him to be. Ralph Branca wasn't what he was before. Like I said, Newcomb wasn't around. And, of course, Preacher Rowe kind of wasn't the same as he was when he was at his best. But, you know, Erskine managed to have his best season in 1952 and 1953. And then again, you know, 1954, Newcomb had gotten back, but Erskine had won 18 more games. And what was significant about, of course, 52 and 53 in particular, were those were years that the Dodgers were winning pennants. And the Brooklyn Dodgers were still a very good team without their top starters. Not having Newcomb around anymore was a big deal. Imagine how good they could have been if Newcomb had not gone into the service and missed a couple years in the major leagues. But, you know, Carl Erskine ends up, you know, pitching one one of the best games in World Series history in 1953. Game three of the World Series against the Yankees. He strikes out 13 batters. He ends up going out there, and you know, five years later, Sandy Koufax will get 14. And of course, Bob Gibson would break that 10 years later on, ironically, the same day. But Carl Erskine was a very good pitcher. And if you're a Brooklyn Dodger fan, of course, if you follow the history of the franchise, you'll know how good he was. But I think it gets a little bit undermined because of the fact of, you know, later on, Sandy Koufax and Don Drosdale were as good as they were. And if you remember the guys before, Don Newcomb was as dominant of a pitcher as there was in Major League Baseball at that time. And Carl Erskine came up at the exact right time and inserted himself and became the ace of the Dodgers staff in 52 and 53 when they absolutely needed him to to be that good. And I'll tell you, it's something that stands out. It may be one of the things that don't really get enough attention pointed to. But once again, John Pielli, Past Ball Show, MTR Radio Network, Bases Empty Block, the whole thing. Um, it was an interesting thing that happened this past week with Russell Wilson, the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks, being taken in a Rule 5 draft by the Texas Rangers. And, of course, he was the property of the Colorado Rockies who had drafted him. He played a couple of years in the minor leagues with him before he signed uh, you know, on with the Seattle Seahawks. And, of course, the rest is history. You know, the Seahawks, and I'm not going to get too much into football here, but I know what I'm talking about, obviously, are probably the best team going out there in the NFC 
with the best chance of representing them in the Super Bowl. It's obvious that it probably wouldn't make the most sense for a guy who's a quarterback, top-profile quarterback in the NFL to become a two-sport athlete, but if he did, he'd obviously draw a long list of different players who have done it in multiple sports. And, you know, there's another guy out there, the uh, Jameis Winston, a quarterback from Florida State. Of course, you know, the allegations with the sexual assault, the whole thing. But he was drafted by the Rangers, the same team that now owns the rights to Russell Wilson, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. So he, he's a guy who could be a two-sport athlete. Obviously, you know he's going to get a good uh, opportunity to play in the NFL. But, you know, maybe he wants to become a two-sport athlete and obviously joins a list of the players that we know. Obviously, Deion Sanders, the Pro Football Hall of Fame defensive back, played several years in the major leagues for teams like the Braves and uh, the Reds and the Yankees and, you know, even the Giants. But, you know, other guys, Ace Parker was a Pro Football Hall of Famer, recently passed away, played two seasons with the Philadelphia Athletics in 1938-1939. And, you know, other guys that are interesting that you may not remember, Brian Jordan, you know, was very well known with the Braves and the Cardinals, was also a defensive back for the Atlanta Falcons. Um, you know, Ron Reed, who was a former Major League pitcher with the Phillies and a couple other teams. Um, Dick Grote, who, pit, who played for, of course, shortstop for the Pirates, among other teams. And then, uh, you know, former Major League pitcher Mark Hendrickson ended up all playing in the NBA at some point. Grote ended up playing for the Fort Wayne Pistons in 1952. Reed played for the Detroit Pistons of the 1980s, and Hendrickson played in the NBA four seasons from 1996 to 2000. And, of course, Danny Ainge, he had a long career in the NBA, is now an NBA executive, uh, played for the Toronto Blue Jays from 1979 to 1981. Uh, John Elway played minor league baseball in the Yankees in the Royal system. Uh, Tom Candiotti, a knuckleball pitcher, was a standout pro bowler and was inducted in an international bowling hall of fame. Standout pitcher Ralph Terry joined the senior PGA Tour and finished 59th on the money list in 1989. And obviously we talked about Winston and where he stands, but you know other NFL uh, players have ended up uh, being drafted. Colin Kaepernick was drafted by the Chicago Cubs. Eric Decker by the Minnesota Twins. Dante Culpepper by the New York Yankees. Tom Brady by the Montreal Expos. Troy Aikman by the New York Mets. And Michael Vick. You know, was also drafted. Dave Winfield, who stands out because, you know, in addition to being a baseball Hall of Famer, he was the first and only player to be drafted by uh, three different professional sports. And he was drafted by in the NBA by the Atlanta Hawks, the ABA by the Utah Stars, and then the NFL's Minnesota Vikings. Tony Gwynn, Mr. San Diego, was drafted by the San Diego Clippers of the NBA. Tom Glavin was drafted by the NHL's Los Angeles Kings, and even Kirk Gibson, 1988 NL MVP, was drafted as a wide receiver by the St. Louis Cardinals. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, Bases Empty Blog. Don't forget to check it out, johnpielli.com. Um, I'm going to continue something I talked about with the, uh, the draft series. And I was breaking down expansion drafts and the way uh, you know a lot of the, them ended up working out. I'm going to be pretty quick with it because I don't want to get too far into it, but... You know, the Montreal Expos took uh, Manny Mota with their first overall pick in air draft and ended up uh, taking guys like Mac Jones and Jack Billingham, Don Clendenin, Bill Stoneman, Larry Jackson, uh, Jimmy Williams, Mudcat Grant, Jerry Robertson, and ended up coming up with a 1969 opening day lineup of Maury Wills, Gary Sutherland, Rusty Staub, Mac Jones, Bob Bailey, John Bateman, Coco LeBoy, Don Hahn, and Mudcat Grant. 
And the Expos finished 52 and 110, last place in a newly formed uh, NL East division. So, you know, you got them and, of course, the Padres who had come in in the same year. They took Ollie Brown, an outfielder for the, for the San Francisco Giants, with their first overall pick. Ended up taking right-hand pitcher Dave Gusty from the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, pitcher Dick Selma from the New York Mets. Um, other guys that were notable were Clay Kirby from the St. Louis Cardinals, Jerry Morales from the Mets, Zoyle Versalis from the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, Jerry Devanin for the St. Louis Cardinals, Al Ferrara for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Tony Gonzalez for the Philadelphia Phillies, Dave Roberts for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and really nothing else stands out there. Cito Gaston was their last pick with the Atlanta Braves. But they, of course, made some moves, but uh, started out with Rafael Robles leading off playing shortstop, followed by second baseman Roberto Pena. Center fielder Tony Gonzalez, Ali Brown, a right fielder, Bill Davis at first base, Larry Stahl in left field, Ed Spezio at third, Chris Canizaro catching, and Dick Selma pitching. Under new manager Preston Gomez, Padres finished 52-110, and 110, last place in a newly formed NL West. Now on to two American League teams. Like I said, there was four teams added for the 1969 season and the 1968 expansion draft. And, you know, we're going to get into right now the Kansas City Royals, who ended up taking Roger Nelson, a pitcher from the Baltimore Orioles with the first overall selection. Joe Foy came over from Boston to play third base. Um, Ellie Rodriguez, a catcher with the Yankees, ended up being drafted. Bob Oliver, Steve Whitaker, Wally Bunker, uh, Dick Drago, Pat Kelly, um, Al Fitzmorris, Mo Jabrowski, Jackie Hernandez, Hoyt Wilhelm were all among players drafted by the Kansas City Royals in the 1968 expansion draft. Their starting lineup ended up starting the season. Lou Pinella led off in center field, followed by second baseman Jerry Adair. Ed Kirkpatrick in left field, Joe Foy at third base, Chuck Harrison at first. Bob Oliver in right field, Ellie Rodriguez catching. Shortstop Jackie Hernandez and right-hand pitcher Willie Bunker got the start. Manager Joe Gordon led them to a 69-93 record in a newly formed AL Western division, but they finished fifth place out of the seven teams ahead of the Chicago White Sox and the expansion Seattle Pilots, who were also involved in that same draft. They end up going out there, and they took... Uh, first baseman Don Mincher out of the California Angels organization with their first overall pick. Tommy Harper, Jerry Euler, Jerry McNurtney, the catcher, Tommy Davis, Marty Patton, uh, Gary Bell, amongst players that they ended up coming up with. Mike Marshall, Jim Gosker, and Mike Ferraro kind of round out the draft. But Tommy Harper was the leadoff batter playing second base. Mike Keegan was in right field. Tommy Davis in left. Mincher was at first. Rich Rollins was the third baseman. Jim Gosker was in center field. McNurtney was catching. Roy Euler was the shortstop. And Marty Patton was the pitcher. And I told you they finished in last place under their new manager, Joe Schultz, and ended up finishing with 98 losses. But what I found interesting about it was something that I hope I could segue with enough time to finish this off was the change of the Seattle Pilots to the Milwaukee Brewers after the 1969 season. And one thing that I do want to get into is why that ended up happening. If you remember other teams that relocated, uh, relocated because there was more than one team in a city. You remember the Boston Braves, the Philadelphia Athletics, the St. Louis Browns all moved because there was other teams there. Even the Washington Senators, the first year when they moved to Minnesota, they got a new team the right way. So the Kansas City Athletics ended up moving to Oakland. They got a new team that same season, and Seattle ends up getting a team for the first time. But the one team that got screwed was the Milwaukee Braves, who ended up moving to Atlanta without a new team. 
And to make a long story short, that was the reason why Milwaukee ended up getting in and getting a team uh, out of Seattle. Of course, Seattle comes back with the Mariners in 1977. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in. Big thanks to Jerry Spradlin, to Chuck McElroy, to Greg Zahn, as well as Jimmy Messier. We'll be back with you next week. Chevrolet.